When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, my friends. This is Alec Vishal Rubin, here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed podcast. Today we hear from an inspired yoga teacher, Jason Bowman. Jason is influenced by Ashtanga Yoga and Vipassana meditation sets. He is deeply committed to his sitting practice, revealing to himself the nature of reality itself. But in meditation, we learn about who we are, and it, and it teaches us what we're made of. Um, both physically and emotionally and mentally and, you know, energetically. Increase in the ability to participate in life, I think. I think we're more able to stay awake and use that level of, of clarity to take ownership over the things that we participate in. He holds an innate ability to be real and maintain a light-hearted sense of humor, which shines through in his concrete yet creative voice. Check out his wisdom as it has been revealed within him on today's episode of the Yoga Revealed Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to Yoga Revealed Podcast. This is Alec, and always thank you so much for tuning in and, and listening to the wisdom of yoga that is being revealed to us by the people we talk to. We really appreciate when you do actually tune in. It means a lot. Today we have very fortunate, high fortune to tune in with Jason Bowman. He is uh, a Boulder brother and he's currently teaching in San Francisco and I had the honor of uh, spending time in Colorado School of Yoga with Gina Caputo over the weekend uh, just listening and having the space to to listen to Jason. You, you come to see that he has this beautiful innate gift of eloquence when he talks. He's a longtime student of Richard Freeman and he really enjoys sitting, and I'm sure we'll dissect that and talk about meditation a little more, but more and more, Jason, thank you for taking some time out of your your visit here to Colorado and uh, sharing with us. Yeah, Yoga. yeah. Thanks for having me. Nice Absolutely. to be here. Get my requisite couple days of snow in Colorado before heading back to the Bay. 
Nice. Awesome, man. So, yeah, we, we love to kind of just start out with a little synopsis of who you are and kind of where you came from before yoga was revealed to you. And then as you, I know you started out, well, I don't know if you started out, but I know you had a huge following and practice with Ashtanga. And then uh, more so, I think now the asana has not lost its value, but you find more meaning perhaps in the meditation practice. Just kind of showing us that evolution through your life. Just a little synopsis of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, I think human beings have the tendency to gravitate towards any number of things. And for different people, certain things tend to carry more weight than others. Um, in my upbringing or in my maturation, the thing that seemed to pull on me without really letting go was yoga. Um, and I think that that happens in a way that very naturally tends to move from the obvious to the invisible or the subtle. And I mean, people do it with dance and people do it with painting and people do it with sport and any number of things that anyone can be interested in. When someone becomes interested in something, the more they give to whatever it is, uh, the more natural it is to explore kind of the, you know, invisible world, as I said, the stuff that lies underneath the surface. So for me, that started by, um, in yoga doing a power vinyasa practice and just kind of blowing my body open a little bit and coming to recognize um, just how the physical structures of my body related to each other was interesting and noticing the growth of proprioception or the growth of awareness of my body in space. And of course, as I did that over the years, um, I became more interested in where that, you know, quote unquote type of yoga was coming from. And was fortunate enough to grow up in Boulder where, uh, as you said, Richard Freeman and his amazing wife, Mary, live. And um, first time I went to their studio, I kind of just experienced some sort of homecoming and then decided to dive into lineage mm. uh, and to work to kind of uncover what I had been doing already for a number of years through a different lens of, uh, of inquiry. And then, of course, uh, that was a hugely fundamental part of my my practice, and because of that, my teaching. Um, and you know, as the years went by, then it just started to uncover more subtlety, and then I, you know, started to become more and more serious of a meditator. Hmm. Um, yeah, so cool. I think that happens very naturally with any said area of passion. Hmm. Just diving deeper. Diving deeper. And, you know, it doesn't have to be even thought of as diving deeper, but really just becoming more and more refined in your ability to pay attention. Mm. And, if you know, with a tennis swing or whatever, you have no idea. And then the more you do it, the more you can actually pay attention to what you're doing. And in yoga, I think that's very, very obvious to th those of us who are dedicated practitioners is the things that we do over and over tend to have more and more uh, curiosity. Cool. Thank you. That's awesome. What do you think is one of the biggest qualities that reveals itself from a consistent meditation practice? Qualities? Qualities or unfoldings, characteristics. What do we get? Oh, I mean, I, you get everything. And again, like it's, I think it's important for us to be careful in saying that it's, it's, 
giving us things. I think we get these things in any number of ways. And you can get it from whatever, sports or art or any hobby. But in meditation, we learn about who we are and it, and it teaches us what we're made of, um, both physically and emotionally and mentally and, you know, energetically. So some sort of um, increase in the ability to participate in life, I think. I think we're more able to stay awake and use that level of, of clarity to take ownership over the things that we participate in. Mm. And of course, it, it, it gives us uh, a refuge. It, it strengthens some sort of internal place that can be returned to in, in moments where that, you know, might be helpful or maybe necessary. Cool. Nice. So would you say that Richard and Mary have been some of your biggest influences as teachers or are there other teachers that have held just as high of a influence for you along the, along the path? Yeah, Richard and Mary certainly um, have played a large part in my digestion of yoga. Um, predominantly, that's where I get a, so much uh, inspiration from mm -hmm. and knowledge from. And it both in a way that is intellectual and, and based in study, but also just based in example. And I think the way that those two individuals carry themselves is um, as much of a teaching as anything that that comes out of their mouth um, is just how they how they choose to be. And that has been a wonderful example for me to experience in my maturation as a as a practitioner. But of course, you know, there's so many teachers out there and that's one of the good things about yoga is if if one teacher doesn't really speak to you, that's a wonderful impetus and inspiration to look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And when you look elsewhere enough, you will find someone that is, seems to be speaking directly to what you need to hear. Mm -hmm. And I have experienced that with many teachers. Um, but yeah, certainly Richard and Mary have been critical influences in my in my practice, which that's is awesome. to say my teaching. That's awesome. And of course, um, I kind of, well, not kind of, I sit with the Vipassana. I, I come from the Goenka lineage, and that's one thing that has um, been hugely important in my practice and has been very complementary to what I've learned from Richard and Mary. Mm. Tell us a little more about the, the Vipassana for those who don't know what a Vipassana is and what that is like. Uh, yeah. Well, there's many different types of Vipassana meditation um, coming from different countries and different lineages. And um, I just so happened to sign up for a 10-day sit. Um, when was it? Maybe 2009, 2010. Uh, having kind of been a casual meditator up until that point. And I remember a, a gentleman that I met traveling many years before that had just gotten out of a 10 day retreat and couldn't stop talking about it when I was hanging out with him. And that kind of planted the seed of, Oh, this sounds like something that I'm interested in doing. And like I said, it took me years to actually do it. And when I did, it was, um, it was, it was earth shattering. Um, and it was one of the most intense experiences I've ever had as far as the the experience of both desperation and ecstasy. Um, but what really grabbed me was I felt like it was the first time where I really uh, tasted 
the things that I had been mentally absorbing for years through through yoga study. And I felt like I didn't really know it until the time that I was really mostly empty of experience. And I was very much based in uh, intellectualizing kind of esotericism. And it was that first sit where I actually kind of came to see some of these things within myself and come to experience some of the things I had read about in myself in a way that was languageless and um, fundamental. So that, you know, the day I left that first retreat, I probably would have said anyone who asked me, I'll never do that again. <laughs> and of course, usually when you say that, that's the first indication that you will be back. And I have been back at least once or twice a year for the last five or six years. So wow. it's a, it's become a very important part of my life. And I wow. very much look forward to doing it every year. And I also very much dread doing it every year. But um, it's a wonderful cleansing of the slate for me. And it mm. kind of um, wipes me clean so that I can be more permeable in the world and be more connected to my own creativity mm. and agency to be a good person. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're such a prime example for us to um, breathe into that having a daily meditation practice is just fundamental towards not only those who teach yoga, but to, to experience a little more through the depth of practice. And, uh, you know, I, I can relate to two tenths of your experience in Vipassana, having sat through Richard's weekend intensive. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and I have an interest that's like knocking on the door for a 10 day, but it'll come when it's ready, when the time aligns. Uh, at the same time, could you speak to maybe those who do have a daily meditation practice and like, what are three of the biggest tips that you could offer that you've seen yourself struggle with in the years that you've kind of been able to redirect that energy into something else to be here? Well, uh, I don't know if I could find three things, but let's see what happens. I think it took me uh, a number of years to even get to a point where I could sit every day or I really wanted to sit every day. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, how much clarity I can even bring to that process. But I think there was at some point just a shift within myself that became uh, evident as my practice in sitting wasn't something that I needed to check off my list in the morning anymore. And I actually wanted to wake up and sit in the morning. And of course, that still changes. And I didn't sit this morning. I'm in, you know, Colorado, and I'm out of my routine. And I was staying with a friend last night and woke up and came here. So there's, of course, days where I still miss it. But by and large, I sit for an hour every morning when I wake up. And that has, like I said, become something that I look forward to doing instead of feeling like I'm obligated to do. And that is something that you can't really force and it and it takes time and maybe it takes a little bit of time, maybe it takes a lot of time, maybe it doesn't happen. But in, in cultivating a practice, you know, my advice based in my experience is um, some sort of regularity. It has to be the same time and the same place every day. I think that's incredibly helpful. Uh, if you kind of do it maybe in the afternoon sometimes, in the morning sometimes, in the evening sometimes, that's great. But it seems that that lack of 
structure or maybe just a little bit less structure makes it harder to stay, you know, honest in that in that practice. So finding regularity in time, I think, has been very important for me. Um, and just doing it not out of necessity, like I said, but not only not out of necessity in something that you have to cross out, but not out of necessity in something to be used to change yourself. Um, I think a lot of times we enter that practice as something to make us more um, comfortable in our discomfort, which is a which is a wonderful thing. But I think it's more important to undertake certainly meditation and also asana practice um, in a way that is more exploratory than based in necessity. Like I need to do this to be a better person or I need to do this to learn about this, that, and the other that I saw or my yoga teacher told me I should be doing this, blah, blah, blah. To to step away from that tendency or at least to become more awake in that tendency as it happens can help us to shift into a more exploratory mindset where it's just like, oh, I wonder what happens if I close my eyes and stay awake for an hour, which is something that we don't do. Um, you know, culturally, that's not something that is valued. And it's a cool thing to just check out. And we're, we spend so much of our upbringing um, listening to people tell us to pay attention to certain things and listen to this and read this and write this and do this and do that. And unfortunately, no one really ever stops and says, well, this is how you pay attention. And I think sitting still for some amount of time every day is how we learn how to pay attention. And when we learn how to pay attention, we become better in all of our undertakings. Um, certainly not limited to yoga, but much more interestingly, we become more uh, skillful in relationships and in our professions and in our creativity. Mm -hmm. So that was rambling. I have no idea if three things <laughs> came out, but I, I think you tapped on that thing. That was great. That was awesome. Thank you. How do you feel like you keep balance with? the struggle of being human and living with just the plethora of sufferings that come our way just through our own condition or maybe from our own neurosis how do you find balance through your practice and just through your life um well i think the first thing to recognize in the aim towards balance is that balance is actually not possible, <laughs> technically speaking. And as long as we are alive, we will be imbalanced. Um, however, we can participate in our loss of balance with more skill, and we can undertake the um, endeavor towards balance in a way that is empty of resistance. And by that, I mean, um, when we first start practicing yoga, something that can happen is we start to uh, resist our upbringing and resist the quote unquote previous version of ourselves. And maybe that um, entails like partying and being very social and doing things that yogis aren't quote unquote supposed to be doing. And then we find yoga and we find meditation and we very much resist against our our upbringing in that way we resist against kind of our ordinary selves and that resistance is healthy because it pushes us towards growth but that resistance can also um, make us less empowered 
to stay balanced. And one thing that I've noticed in myself is um, the ability to like just say yes to things is very important to maintaining balance. And sometimes that means like saying yes to staying up too late and saying yes to eating too much and saying yes to drinking some nights or saying yes to doing this, saying yes to do this and doing so in a way that is uh, holding the ideal of balance by recognizing that balance is almost um, inescapable in some way. Things will naturally balance themselves out. Um, but if we can be there to observe our tendencies to lose balance, then we can use those tendencies as invitations to start over and to come back into to an equilibrium, uh, which is to say a balance of the mind as our circumstances change around us. Hmm. I like how you say it's impossible for us to have balance because it's like we feel after we come out of yoga practice, oh, I'm so balanced. I feel right. Alive. And it, and when we do that, what we're actually doing is is creating an unsustainable projection of how things should be forever going into the future. And so what we need to recognize is that uh, balance is is very ordinary. And when we leave yoga feeling, you know, whatever, mystical and spiritual and taken care of and, and very light and et cetera, <laughs> these things are wonderful, but they might not necessarily be an integrated, you know, ordinary thing. And so when you leave the yoga room and then two hours later you're at work and all of a sudden you're responding to emails and you're having interpersonal relations and that, that kind of shininess manufactured through yoga isn't there as much then we lose balance because we're back to the ordinary and we were hoping for something other than the ordinary to be there so when we when we leave when we practice it should make us more um it should help us to embrace the ordinary more and that to me is balance more than it is hearing the divine sound through more hours of the day that to me is less interesting than seeing the detail uh and remaining awake with a sense of humor through things that are seemingly mundane hmm. so it sounds like i mean in in side of it all you've allowed your practice to be the returning framework for all things that are balance, imbalance, ideas of what creates this or that in your life, any challenge, mm -hmm. then that's the framework of life. It's, it's, yeah, it's a mirror. And like I said, there's so many different mirrors. There's things, anything that you repeat over and over in some way becomes the frame of reference so that you can then see yourself. Um, you know, like an example that I like is a gardener having entered their garden every day for however long, has a very easy time seeing new growth and noticing weeds and seeing a new rabbit hole or any of these things. And it's because they're in the garden every day. But when you're not in the garden every day, it becomes much harder to see those mm. things. So it, yeah, I like that With sitting practice. If you do it every day, it's the same thing every day, objectively, but subjectively within that experience, you're changing. And because you have that kind of objective solidity 
so to speak, in the practice, whatever that practice is, whether it's reading the newspaper or sitting still or playing tennis every morning, there's some sort of solidity that then points back at the subjective experience um, that is used to, yeah, hopefully create balance, but also just give us a, a more well-rounded apprehension of who and what we are individually, uniquely, as well as collectively. Nice. That absolute and into the relative. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, you know, something we had kind of tapped into over the weekend at the Colorado School of Yoga was uh, cliches. And uh, I found it just uh, warming and real the way that you just kind of talked about cliches. And uh, as you were talking about certain cliches, I looked down at my shirt and I was wearing Ganesh and an ohm on my shirt all over. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> I feel like a cliche and that's OK. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I owned it. It was it was funny. I could laugh at it. Mm-hmm. Um, what are cliches in our yoga world? And, and I think uh, one of the few things that you said coming down into when you owned your cliches was like, do it on purpose. Do it with skill. And I forget the third thing. <laughs> but uh, you know, tell us about cliches of the yoga yeah. world. Um, you know, it's it's such an interesting thing, and it's something that's been so close to me for now for a while, and it's something that I it's very sensitive, um, and it's it's very important to me. <laughs> and usually, when things are very important to you, you have a harder time speaking to them. And um, what is, you know, let's see, when. When I first started teaching yoga, um, people would say, you know, hey, what do you do for a living or whatever when you meet someone? I'd be like, yeah, I'm a yoga teacher. And I'd be super proud to say that because it was something that I was and still I am very passionate about and believe in. Um, But as I got more entrenched into the yoga world and as I came more into touch with my own cliche, which I can speak to more in a moment, it suddenly became, maybe not suddenly, but slowly and unceremoniously became harder for me to kind of say I'm a yoga teacher. Mm. And part of that was because, um, you know, I associate with many different types of people and most of my dearest friends and closest people in my life do not practice or study yoga. Mm. And um, in communicating with people like that, it has become easier for me to see the yoga cliche. And by that, I mean, uh, with some sort of air of cultural appropriation, we adorn ourselves materialistically in things that yogis are supposed to adorn themselves with. We, you know, burn incense and we put bindis on our foreheads and yeah, we have Ganesha on our shirts and we did whatever. We sing kirtan and we do all, we wear beads. We do all the things that yogis are quote unquote supposed to do. And we do so in a way that um, is overly simplified, I think, and not integrated in experience and also tends to lead towards a, a betrayal in the meaning of those things that we're appropriating. Um, and this is a huge subject, and we could, of course, spend a lot of time talking about this, but I think this um, is normal. And I think there's a, a part of when we do something new, and it's really easy to see in adolescents and in teenagers. There's a very normal part of life where we resist, like I said, our upbringing. And in teenagers, they do it by having their very favorite band 
and they dress like their very favorite band and they post all the posters of their very favorite band and their identity becomes this band, so to speak, In for example. Um, and as they do that, it's coming from rebelliousness. And we know what that feels like in seeing a rebellious teenager and their chosen band. I think we have a harder time seeing that sometimes we use yoga and spirituality in the same way that a teenager uses the band to create identity. Mm. And it is my perspective that yoga is not an identity. And the the true quote unquote practitioners are going to be the last ones that say, I'm a yogi. But so many of us, because we're thirsty for some sort of meaning and thirsty for some sort of identity that we can prop ourselves up on, become caricatures of the yoga cliche. And we use yoga as an identity instead of a technology. And sometimes that looks like um, an echo chamber. And there's there's words that are used so often within the yoga world. And again, this goes for any subculture. This happens in every subculture. And it's normal that it does to some degree. But like you said, at some point, we have to actually own the cliche. We have to take the things that are echoing around in the echo chamber and artistically reshape them to give them back their meaning. Um, now, it's not to say we shouldn't do quote unquote yoga things. Like maybe it's maybe it's a spontaneously natural expression to wear a Ganesh t-shirt or to burn incense or to chant Sanskrit. Um, but we need to be aware of the motivation behind why we do those things. And for me, like I have, there's much more meaning to me in say a Beatles song than in like a Hare Krishna chant. And that's my culture. And I had to go through being a cliche in order to, to swallow my culture again and to come back into the ordinary. And for me, you know, I grew up in Boulder and there was a time in that adolescent phase where I became very resistant to my upbringing and I learned about yoga. And as I learned about yoga, I said, oh, everything I've been taught up until this point is wrong. And now I'm going to use yoga as a resistance to the status quo. I'm going to use yoga to hate the government and to and to rebel against pop culture and to not do things that are natural in the status quo. And in doing so, I was creating an identity um, erroneously and unsustainably by resisting things that were normal and ordinary. And that doesn't mean you were supposed to um, condone the ordinary or the status quo, but it means we need to not resist it so much. So anyway, in my progression, I did all the yogi things. I became the yogi cliche in, in so many different ways. And it took me a lot of time to start to see that. Hmm. And when I did start to see that, that was associated with a concurrent witnessing of the same cliche in the general sense, in the community of yoga. Um, now, we have to try things on. We have to try practices on. We have to try techniques on. But at some point in that phase of trying things on, we have to integrate the things that we're trying on. And that only takes time. And I always think of Miles Davis said, you have to play for an extreme amount of time before you can actually play like yourself. 
And I, and I think about that in terms of yoga because sometimes we, you know, quote unquote, play yoga for a month or a year and it becomes this manufactured identity that hasn't been swallowed. Like Miles Davis swallowed his ability to play the trumpet like himself. We tend to not do yoga like ourselves and we tend to do it in mirror in, a, in an energy of mimicry of what we think we should be doing as yogis. So, you know, I could keep rambling about this, but I think a good way to think about it is we shouldn't do yoga like teenagers, you know, hang posters. We shouldn't adopt a style of dress just because we're supposed to, but we should investigate things and use yoga not as a way to create an identity based upon things we quote unquote should be doing, but we should use yoga as a technology to point us back to our ordinariness, which is unique and and full of magic and full of detail and creativity. We can use yoga to point us towards who we are instead of using yoga as an ornament that we wear on our sleeve to say to people, hey, look how spiritual I am. Look how happy I am. And look how many motivational quotes I can post on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, Here's an interesting question, and I'm not even sure if it has an answer. We'll see. Um, What do you view as a status quo of the yoga teacher is here in the West? You mean like in terms of the cliche or in terms of... Just the average expectation of a yoga teacher here in the West where it's like, oh, I did my 200 hours. You know, is there a status quo? Well, I think it's there's an interesting gift in where we are and there's an interesting danger in where we are and i think they both come from the same place which is that there's a real lack of groundedness in in a cultural expectation of what a yoga teacher um should have in terms of experience before they're teaching but not only that there's a such an open-ended definition of what yoga is that we find ourselves in a place where it's beautiful because it's up to us to define what yoga is. It's up to us to define the the ethical boundaries in the teacher-student relationship. It's up for us to decide what actually qualifies someone to teach yoga. Um, but in the same sense, that is dangerous because it is so up for grabs that the definitions are becoming cliche and the, the yoga teachers are perhaps underqualified. And because of the lack of qualification, the perpetuation of a practice that is doing an injustice to its depth is starting to be more of a danger. It's starting to be more of a rampantly, uh, accessibly observed thing. So, um, you know, and I'm not here to say this is what we should do is in terms of qualifying teachers and this is what yoga should be. I'm one small part of that conversation. I certainly have opinions but I think what's most important is that we have the conversation and my opinions are going to be different from other people's and that's important for me and it's important for them to entertain each other's opinions mm. and to to hold them without resistance or clinging. Um, yeah. What do you feel, if you're open to sharing, what do you feel some are, are some of the, uh, I want to say requirements, but um, beliefs or just practices that one should integrate or uh, how to 
continue studies to mm-hmm. dive further with Svadhyaya, with the self-study? Well, I think the the number one requirement of a yoga teacher is a yoga practice. And I think we're, I think that's, you know, that sounds so obvious, mm-hmm. but it's amazing how, how prevalently that is not a truth. Um, so many times when teachers start teaching, first of all, because it's impossible to make a living as a yoga teacher for 95% of yoga teachers, they stop practicing because they need to be teaching all day, every day in order to pay rent, which is unfortunate because I think it's a profession that adds great value to a lot of lives and in so doing to the world. But yeah, very simply, a yoga teacher is only a yoga teacher because they have a practice. And I think we can tell in a wordless way when teachers have a practice and when they don't. And of course that points back to the, the, the cliche conversation as well, because a lot of times in the echo chamber, what we do as teachers is just regurgitate things that we've heard said. And, um, Again, that's a natural stage in evolution of learning. When we learn an instrument, we regurgitate what our teacher tells us to do. Um, but we have to remember the critically important part of integrating what we're told. So I think for that very reason, it's important that there's a, a lot of time um, involved in the definition of what makes a teacher. It takes nothing but time to integrate what you've been taught. And a teacher that integrates what they've been taught in their experience is a teacher that people like to listen to because it feels authentic and it feels real. And that's because they have owned the cliche. They have put it inside of their experience and they're speaking from not an encyclopedic knowledge of what yoga is, but speaking from the fact that they've tasted something and that they can speak to that. So that's... Well, I was going to say unfortunately, but probably fortunate that that only takes time. Mm -hmm. And what we should remember as teachers is that we need to be patient with ourselves. And maybe when we hear something, some great new cue or some wonderful new practice from a teacher and said echo chamber, we refrain from saying that thing and we refrain from teaching that thing until we've done it the honor and the justice of letting it become a part of us. Mm. And that only comes through practice and effort and time. Thank you for that nugget. It's a good one. Um, let's, let's talk about a yoga sutra. So 2.3. Avidya asmita raga dvesha abnivesha klesha. So ignorance, egoism, attachment, aversion, and clinging to life. Um, I find that when I read a yoga sutra, I can't just read all of it and like, I'll be like, okay, all right. You know, I feel that like super slowly does it come in and integrate incredibly slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure if you agree with that or have kind of methods on how to integrate sutras into our life. But with this one specifically, you know, the kleshas, can you tell us for those who maybe don't know what the kleshas are, the, the, these experiences and how, these just perpetuate suffering how we're looking to observe well yeah these are these are you know they're called the panchakleshas the five causes of affliction um and according to this realm of yoga philosophy these are the problems with um these are the things that lead to misery 
And um, it's, a, it's a very interesting conversation. And one of the things that's, that's beautiful about especially the Yoga Sutra is that it, it lays out, you know, the way things are, quote unquote, cosmologically. This is how things are. This is how the mind creates meaning. This is how meaning affects the mind. Um, and then it says, here's the problem with why and how this happens. And then it, it gives a step of practice, a series of practices to overcome said problems. So these are the problems and there's five of them, but what really, they all relate to the first one, which is called avidya, which, you know, essentially means not knowing or ignorance, nescience and not knowing in this context of the Yoga Sutra revolves really around a couple things. One is not knowing the true nature of self, um, misidentifying things that change as being who we are. And this is very fundamental to classical yoga philosophy and to, you know, hopefully modern yoga practice is shifting identification away from the sensory world and onto the thing that experiences the sensory world. And that's, of course, a loaded sentence that could probably be unpacked, but changing sensations, changing thoughts, um, changing ideas, changing identities, even socially constructed, those things are not, according to yoga, what we are. And what we are is the thing that observes those things change. And so that's the first type of ignorance is the misidentification of self. Hmm. And that's that's a very lofty and esoteric way of, of broaching that subject here in a short amount of time. But it's it's very simply felt in, you know, this is the reason why we can get so upset when, you know, we spill wine on carpet or our watch breaks or we lose our job or a relationship ends. And that is because we put so much of our identity into these sensory things, uh, which is to say into these things that are changing And when you spill wine on the carpet, you suffer not really because the carpet has a stain. You suffer because your sense of self is erroneously placed in the carpet or in the watch or in the relationship or in the job. So the first um, practice is to recognize that we are not those things. And there is something inside of us that is always balanced and is always awake and is always um, experiencing change. Which, of course, leads to the second, um, you know, facet of avidya, of ignorance, which is the difficulty in really recognizing that change. And maybe not even the difficulty in recognizing it, but the difficulty in acknowledging its um, ubiquitousness, which is to say the difficulty in recognizing that we're going to die and the difficulty in recognizing that everything that we love is going to die. And not only that, the difficulty in recognizing that everything we don't love is going to die. So the rest of the afflictions really revolve around these two things because um, egoism revolves around identifying ourselves through sensory objects. Attachment and aversion come through the erroneous thought that external things can make us more full. Um, So we either attach to the things we think are going to make us more full or we avoid the things that we think diminish our fullness. And in so doing, we forget about the fact that all of those things, the objects of clinging and resistance, are impermanent and they're going to change. So even though you get the object, 
you, even though you get the promotion, even though you're in the relationship, even though you got the perfect new carpet, um, those things will not last. So if we put our well-being in their hands, what we're actually doing is disempowering our own agency to take control of our own contentment mm. through the blindness to change and through the difficulty in seeing that we are separate from the sensory world in the most fundamental sense. Mm. <laughs> I, uh, I think that the life and death conversation is something that I, I've always valued. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find a unique relationship with death in my own experience uh, from others and just observing it. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you, how do you observe death? How do you observe life? Cause I think, I don't think it's something that we just go to yoga class and be like, Hey, on this microphone, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't talk about that mm-hmm. here in the West. And when I had the, um, incredible blessing to travel the world last year in January, February, I was in Thailand and there was this huge funeral on the streets and like, not everyone knew this person who had died. It was just like a community member and like the streets were crowded and like, they celebrate death, you know, it's just a, and here it's like, we fear death, but maybe, I mean, we all hold, um, that innate unknowing of what's going to come. Mm-hmm. And like, of course I'm not going to pretend to know what's going on. I have no idea. Right. I don't, I don't know if anyone, any of us know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. I think, I think first of all, what I, in my experience am noticing currently is that there is a um a growth in visibility in the conversation uh that revolves around end of life issues and how end of life issues actually affect all of us all the time um it has you know the subject of death is something that is just incredibly fascinating to me and in my experience um getting closer to death um i think paves the way for getting closer to the enjoyment of life and recognizing the fragility of life is in fact the thing that makes us live. Um, and not only that, it's the thing that makes us love. I think I think love comes through the permission to death. And we can say that through death as death, but we can also say that as death of protection, um, the cultivation of vulnerability. It's really impossible to love without acknowledging your own rawness and your own fragility and which is to say your own death. And when you when you let go of the need to be guarded, um, and what is the thing that we guard ourselves against is is pain, um, uncomfort, or rather discomfort. And when we cover ourselves from pain and discomfort, I think fundamentally what we're doing is distracting ourselves from our own mortality. When we refrain from doing those things, when we acknowledge our rawness and our vulnerability, um, we're more able to connect. And I think that connection is a a source of fundamental joy in human life. Um, I think, especially for me, I can speak for myself, when I feel content, it's because I feel connected to people. Um, and when I don't feel content, it it comes from 
a lack of continuity in relationship in all the different types of relationship that can be had. And the success of relationship is the unclothing of self-protective mechanisms um, so that we can be seen as fragile. Now, I think also death is critically important in the process of being creative. Um, I think the act of creating, of making art in any of the many number of ways that we can create art in some way, maybe behind the scenes, maybe very obviously comes from the acknowledgement of death in a way. And that is the acknowledgement of the death of past parts of yourself. I think every time you create something, what you're really doing is creating a new version of yourself. You're creating a new way to look at things. And in order to do so, what has to be done is a release of previous ways of looking at things. And not in a way that, that shames them or pushes them away, but in a way that says, okay, here I am now. And in the act of sharing creativity, we also have to kind of stand naked in our fragility and say, this is something that I have done that I think is emblematic of who I am now. And as you put it out into the world, what you're really doing is putting yourself out into the world in a way that is open to judgment and critique. And that's scary. And it's especially scary if you have the overly blown egoic identification. Hmm. Um, but that identification is softened through the simple ability to remember that you're going to die. And somehow it becomes easier to connect with people and it becomes easier to be creative when you remember that because it, it gives us courage and I think it gives us a sense of humor. Um, it allows us to qualify that which is trivial in a, in a more uh, holistically full frame of reference in a bigger picture view, which is the fact that we're not here forever. So maybe we should just get up on stage and read the essay that we're scared to read. Or maybe we should just call so-and-so back even though we're scared of rejection. Because guess what? This is our chance. And when we hold death close, we remember that we're alive. Mm -hmm. And it is death that makes the sensations of life what they are. Mm. Um, because they're not going to be there forever. So let's let's find them. And I think, you know, you uh, you translated abinivesha, the final klesha, as uh, clinging to life. And it could also be defined as a fear of death. But I think more interestingly to me, it's fear of connecting and fear of creating. Mm. It is, it's fear of actually living um, in a way that is vulnerable. And that vulnerability, like I've said, I think is most interestingly seen in connection and creation. Mm beautiful it is beautiful yeah death is awesome yeah and it's it's easy to say that from afar and i haven't necessarily had um you know intense experience of loss in relationship to others that i've heard of of mm -hmm. course uh but i'm very touched in hearing about others experiences of death and I uh, volunteer at a hospice center in an interesting way. And I'm connected with a community in San Francisco that creates art based around um, the meditation on death. And those things have added so much value to my life mm. and have allowed me to see my problems are actually not that big of a deal. Yeah. Microcosm. Cool.
kind of segueing topics a little bit, love to hear your experience with your knee. Well, that's basically worse than dying. <laughs> <laughs> so you you uh, had knee surgery eight months ago from Padmasana for three years straight in a row. Kind of. Um, <laughs> Joking. Yeah, yeah. I had knee surgery. I had tore my meniscus, my medial meniscus in my right knee. Um, and I think it was a degenerative thing that was slowly getting weaker and weaker. And the first time I heard it pop was squatting at the golf course uh, to read the green, which of course was overestimating my abilities to actually putt a ball with any skill, but that's besides the point. And then I it popped again when I was unfolding my legs um, from Padmasana from the Lotus Pose. Um, yeah, and it's totally sucked. <laughs> and it sucked because... Um, uh, well, it made me realize that I'm vulnerable and that sucks to feel sometimes even in yeah. spite of the conversation that we just had, Yeah. but I'm a relatively young person and that was, this has been kind of the first glimpse into what it's like to have a body that's not behaving as I think it should. Um, and it's been a, an interesting road to recovery. And in recovering, some other things have, of course, gone out of balance because that's what's happening. That's what happens in life is you balance one thing and another thing gets balanced. And then you have the inv invitation to balance that. And you get that and something else is going to go out of balance. So um, I guess, you know, tangibly, realistically speaking, I can give advice to yogis, which is to be careful and when the teacher says, if this hurts in your knee, do something else, that actually means if this hurts in your knee, do something else. It's not just like something that people say <laughs> in the old echo chamber. Um, I um, It has changed my practice. Um, it's changed my ability to sit still, which is something that's very important to me. But it has also been um, interesting in the ability the invitation that it's created to observe how traumatic things are stored in the body and i think on the the spectrum of traumatic things this is fairly low on the spectrum of trauma but i can feel a guardedness still in myself r r around my knee and my uh, because of that my psoas and the core of my body and the way that i walk and the way that i do everything i still think is affected by that memory of trauma in my body and how I'm still scared of going towards that trauma. Um, yeah, it makes me feel like I'm getting old, which is uncomfortable. And it's important that I, that I sit with that discomfort. And hopefully I'll have a somewhat normal knee soon. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I remember soon after I tore it, I was teaching and I saw one of my students you know, before the end of class, sit in Padmasana in Lotus Pose. And I just felt this wave of grief in myself of like, wow, I actually don't know if I'll ever do that again. And I like sitting in Lotus Pose. Like it, it used to feel very good for me to sit with my legs crossed in that manner. And I haven't, I have not done that for over a year. And who knows if I will again, I'd, I'd like to think that I will, but if I don't, can I be okay? Um, without that and i think that i i can <laughs> <laughs> nice jason um thank you
for being uh, vulnerable and, and opening that space up. It's, uh, it's humbling, I feel. I mean, I have a wrist injury that I'm working through, and I, like you, love playing on my hands. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's just humbling to know that it's the practice of impermanence. Yeah. And injuries also teach us a lot about how the body works. Very, very obviously, very viscerally. It's like, oh, this action hurts my knee. This action hurts my wrist. Maybe I can change something physically, muscularly, structurally. I can do, I can move differently. I can hold myself in a different pattern. I can resist the path of least resistance, um, which brought me to that original injury. So injuries are really great for showing us how some of our paths of least resistance are in fact unhealthy. Mm. Um, But of course, it also shows us um, how the mind works. As much as it shows us how the body works, it shows us how we cling to the bodily experience and how we avoid discomfort and how we want things to be very neat and tidy all the time. And when they're not, um, that's why injury is a negative thing is because it makes us feel not put together and not feeling put together is very uncomfortable, Mm. but um, inherent to life. Mm. Hmm. What do you think about just a few words on the commodification of yoga and about the future of yoga? Um, I mean, trends and styles come and go and they always will. And I think historically we can see, um, well, almost paradoxically, the fact that yoga has stuck around this long. But also that in this long, uh, there has been a, a lot of um, coming and going in the practice. I mean, its popularity has waxed and waned, just like any fashion uh, popularity has waxed and waned, I think. As far as the commodification of yoga, um, I, I think about that in terms of what we previously talked about, about how it's it's slippery and it's weird, but it's where we're at. And because that's where we're at, we have the ability to make that commodification um, hopefully not diminish the depth of the practice. Mm. And the number one problem with, you know, commodification of yoga is that it makes students feel like clients. I think that is the number one problem with that. And when students feel like clients, they feel a sense of entitlement and that they're owed a certain experience because they're paying for that experience. And I think that there is a very real danger that is prevalent of teachers pandering to clients instead of teachers teaching students. Mm. Um, So I I think to a large degree, it's up to us as students to A, recognize that there is value in what is being offered to us. And because in this world we uh, associate value with money for, you know, very normal and natural reasons, that it's because of that it's important that we pay for people's time and energy. And that's what money is. It's a time and energy coupon. And when someone spends their time and energy to help us or to teach us or to give us this or to give us that, we give them a time and energy coupon. And that's important. Um, However, I think as we do that, we must also remember that in this particular realm, we're not owed anything. 
from our teachers. Um, if, if you pay for a yoga class and the teacher doesn't do the one pose that you wanted and didn't play the top 40 hit that you wanted to hear in your class, that doesn't mean that you are deservant of your money back. And you, it's funny, but that's a thing. And people, wow. you know, write feedback to yoga studios about how the teacher doesn't do enough arm balances and da 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 doesn't play the right type of music and doesn't say the right type of shit at the end of the class and all this. And that is um, the attitude of self-indulgent clients, um, which is kind of disgusting and it's important to be aware of. Hmm. But... Again, it's natural, I think, that yoga is a commodity now. And after all, I make a fair portion of my living based upon selling my experience of that commodity, which feels weird to say that out loud, but totally. that's the way it is. And it is weird. But here we are. And how can we recognize the value in it? And how can we recognize the normalcy and attaching money to value? And how can we also recognize that there is such a thing of value that um, exists outside of money? Yeah, and I mean, I think that you, this is the first time I've taken your class and I was really, really happy and uh, grateful of how you wove in Ashtanga, pause, vinyasa mm -hmm. to, you know, separate experiences into your, your teaching. It was really... It was just really authentic to you, and I appreciated that so much. Right, and and the authenticity only comes through experience. Totally. And it's that's taken me a long time to deliver a class that I feel both does justice to tradition and where I come from, but also does justice to where I am now. Mm. And what not only where I am now, but where my students are now, more importantly. Meeting your audience. Right. Cool. Nice. Well, you know, man, just... Uh... Two more questions. One is, what would you remind the world of? If we have forgotten something, what is it that you might like to remind us of? Oh, man. <laughs> God, probably, you know, if given enough time, I could probably ramble on about my opinions of what she, we should be remembering all day. Um, You know, my my first instinct is like, relax, mm. stop taking everything so seriously, including yoga, but that has to be qualified by its opposite, and that's a part of yoga is playing devil's advocate with yourself, and when I say relax and don't take things so seriously all the time, that also means dedicate yourself and take things seriously. <laughs> um, but I think we become. In our reaching towards things, whether it's yoga or success or love, in our reaching towards things, we become blind to what's present already in our vicinity that is able to be enjoyed as perfect. And I think when we relax ourselves a little bit, it's um, we need less. And as we learn more, not again out of necessity, but out of exploration, as we learn more, we need less. And when we need less, um, life is more full. And it's a weird paradox. So I guess I would remind people of that. Nice. Yeah, do your best and also relax and make poor choices sometimes. <laughs> and let yourself lose balance to see what it's like to lo lose balance. 
and there's no need to chastise yourself when you lose balance because when you lose balance um that means you're alive mm. nice and then one more that was a good nugget but now we want one more golden nugget that you would offer to the yoga practitioners and the yoga teachers um as they carry forward on their practice on in, in well just in, in terms of our conversation i think um it is critically important that we become aware of and take ownership of the cliche mm. um and that doesn't mean again stop wearing ganache and stop burning incense but examine um we all must examine and this goes not for yogis as well we all must examine how it is that we prop our manufactured identity up on things that make it feel more shiny and how that that leads to an unsustainable experience of contentment and success and happiness um so for yoga teachers, I think that comes in, you know, like I said, not saying the yoga cue that you just heard in class the other day just because you thought it was a good cue, but to actually implement it and to integrate it and to chew on it. And for for yoga students to recognize that, um, you know, certainly yoga is so, um, so much more than a sticky mat and Lululemon tights and whatever and you don't need to be you don't need to fit in there is no yoga to fit into mm -hmm. yoga should push us more into our own uniqueness than it should to um make us reflect some sort of cultural idea of what we should be doing mm. yeah mm. It's hard though and it's it's very normal we want to play the guitar like our favorite guitar player we want to swing the golf club like our favorite golf player we want to do yoga like our best friend taught us how to do yoga or our yoga teacher taught us to do yoga and that's very normal but in in giving those things time is how we take ownership over them and that way when we go to put on our mala beads or our lululemon tights we are doing those things in a manner that is just like a tree grows leaves and not like the way a teenager hangs a rebellious poster on their wall. Hmm. Nice. Or something. Or something. <laughs> I like the or something. Cool. Thank you, Jason, for revealing to us yoga as you have stumbled upon it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And as you uh, said at the end of class, may we all be free. Yes. Thank you. Cheers. Much love. You can sit and practice with Jason in San Francisco, where he teaches weekly classes at the Yoga Tree. He's got a yoga retreat coming up in Moab and Patagonia in 2016. His online schedule and amazing blog can be found at jasonbowmanyoga.com. My name is Alec Rubin, and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. From one practitioner to another, thank you for listening. It means so much to us if you would subscribe to Yoga Revealed on iTunes and rate us with a kind five stars. Check us out on Instagram and YouTube for behind-the-scenes footage of the Yoga Revealed podcast crew. 
We hope this episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast inspires you to try and sit still and listen to the world around by tuning in to what's going on inside. Namaste, my friends. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.